Well, we have come to the end and destination of our journey through God's Word. Uh, most of you are aware we've been working through a, a series we've called Route 66, uh, looking through all 66 books of the Bible in one calendar year. So we've been moving very quickly, and today we will be considering the book of Resolu- uh, the, the book of Revelation, which is the resolution to the great plot line of the Bible, of human history. God, in his grace, has given us the final chapter uh, to sustain us in our journey. The journey uh, of, of life is not easy. It's certainly not easy for the follower of Christ. Uh, we find ourselves swimming upstream, going against the current, um, being misunderstood, sometimes misrepresented by the culture. Uh, And so again, God in his grace has told us how the story ends, and it's intended to encourage us. Revelation is not the easiest book to navigate, especially in one message. Uh, So we're going to just take a moment here to kind of orient ourselves to the book, and then uh, do a, a brief overview this morning. Uh, It's a great word for our day. Uh, We need a word from God. We have a word from God. And uh, it's a blessing to be able to hear the word proclaimed today. Uh, First of all, Revelation uh, was written by the Apostle John. Not sure if I have control of that, Brian. You might have to advance that. Revelation was written by the Apostle John. We actually have several different uh, times in the book where... Uh, John identifies himself. Uh, John was one of the 12 apostles, one of the original 12 disciples uh, of Jesus, and he was, uh, has the distinction of being the only apostle that died a natural death, that was not martyred for his faith. So John lived a little bit longer, uh, but John was not immune from suffering. A matter of fact, here in the opening verses, he identifies himself as a fellow sufferer. Let's read these opening verses, Revelation 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, Uh, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Uh, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So uh, John is writing from the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. Uh, This was an island that was used by Roman authorities as a place of exile. So you might think Alcatraz. Right? He is sort of banished to this island at this point in his life. Uh, there's this growing tide of opposition and persecution that is beginning to uh, 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 raise its ugly head in the Roman world. Uh, again, because it was John that was writing, this is the last book of the Bible to be written. 
Uh, the, the books of the Bible don't necessarily always appear in chronological order, but Revelation certainly falls in the right place here at the end. The early church fathers tell us that John had been banished to Patmos, the island, by the Roman emperor Domitian uh, in uh, the 90s there. So, you know, if, if Christ was, uh, was on earth with his earthly ministry there in the mid-30s, and we're talking another 30 or 40 years later when John is writing this. Revelation was a circular letter to be distributed among the seven struggling churches of Asia Minor. Uh, again, Church history tells us that John had served as the bishop of the church in Ephesus, and that would have been sort of the capital church in this region, the capital city in the region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so he's writing to churches that he was well acquainted with. And again, overt persecution was on the horizon. It becomes very apparent as we read through uh, the book of Revelation Uh, Revelation comes from the word apocalyptic, uh, which means to uncover or reveal. So uh, again, the revelation is the revealing, right? Um, It is the revealing or the unveiling of Jesus and his kingdom. It was intended to pull back the curtain and again, let us know how the story ends. Uh, There is a particular blessing pronounced on those who read and respond to the words of this book. Uh, We read it there in the opening chapter in verse 3, and it's actually reiterated again at the very end in chapter 22. Uh, There is this sort of exclamation point, pay attention, learn from this book, respond to it, and if you do, there's a particular blessing. So uh, Revelation is not simply uh, some mystery novel that is meant to entertain you and kind of pique your curiosity, Uh, there is a message here to understand and obey. Um, And so, uh, again, the blessing is there, not just for those who hear it, but for those who respond to it, who obey it. So that brings us to the purpose of the book, and I'm going to summarize it like this, uh, all 22 chapters. Uh, Revelation is written to encourage a beleaguered church to live courageously in light of the ultimate victory of Jesus. I just like the word beleaguered. I thought we needed a vocabulary word for the day. Uh, You could have chosen any number of things, a suffering church, right, uh, an oppressed church, a a minority uh, church, a church living as a minority in the culture, right, Um, an exiled church. But um, that, that's the idea, that, that, that it's intended to encourage the church uh, to live out their faith, to live faithfully uh, in anticipation of Christ's ultimate victory and his return. Uh, it's written to tell the believers what must soon take place, according to verse 1. Intended to convey grace and truth from the triune God. Verses 4 and 5 there in the opening chapter. uh, John extends grace and peace to these believers. Uh, One commentator said this. All this revelation is presented not to satisfy idle curiosity about the future, but to encourage the people of God to endure in a world dominated by 
wickedness. So again, these believers were encountering great hardship, but in spite of all that, there was this call to endure and a bold declaration of hope. Uh, We are not told that we will escape suffering and tribulation in this life. Matter of fact, we are told just the opposite. (laughs) We will experience suffering and tribulation in this life. But we are told that God is with his people in the midst of their suffering and that Christ will win the final victory over his enemies and God's people will one day be vindicated. Uh, This is the great message of the book of Revelation. All right, brief caveat. Uh, This is a strange book, all right? Uh, The characters and events in Revelation are like something out of a Marvel movie. And uh, I've just watched a couple Marvel movies this week. It's fresh in my mind, right? But there is a beast, there is a dragon, there is a pale rider, Uh, There are giant locusts. There are angels wielding ominous sickles. Uh, There is water being turned to blood. There's a lake of fire. There are islands and mountains being moved about on the surface of planet Earth. Individuals with multiple horns projecting out of their heads. Right, Rather strange to us, but I would suggest to you that this apocalyptic language captures the cosmic proportions of these events more effectively than any mundane language ever could. He's painting a picture, a dramatic picture of the end of the age. Uh, Because of the apocalyptic genre... Uh, Revelation has been subject to a wide array of interpretations. Uh, John Calvin, uh, the noted reformer, wrote commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible except Revelation. He didn't say overtly why he didn't write a commentary on Revelation, but the, the word on the street is that he just wasn't sure he could totally state with certainty what was going on here. Uh, we don't know. We just know it's a difficult, it can be a difficult book to understand, even for somebody brilliant like John Calvin, let alone for me. There's a few uh, sort of approaches uh, that have been used, and we're not going to spend much time here, but uh, just to give you a sense of the diversity of interpretation, some have uh, embraced what's called the preterist uh, approach, which is basically saying that these events were all Uh, completed and fulfilled in John's day. So as we look at it from the 21st century, it's sort of a record of what happened back then. And in some sense, John was communicating what was happening right then in the first century. Uh, There's a historical approach uh, that would say that um, Revelation is sketching the history of the church from its inception to the return of Christ and the end of the age. And so all the numerous uh, symbols designate various historical movements. So, for example, it was very popular at one time uh, during the the Reformation period uh, to identify the beast in Revelation as the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, right? So you're looking for all of these connection points in history and trying to figure out the code, all right? The idealist approach uh, 
suggests that the symbolism in, in Revelation is not to be interpreted literally or chronologically, but just a, it's just a general declaration of Christ's victory. So don't get too hung up on the details. And then, of course, the futurist approach that would suggest that everything in Revelation from chapter 4 onward finds its fulfillment in the very last days of human history. And um, each of these views contains some elements of truth, but I believe the futurist approach best represents the emphasis of the book. References to what must come to pass or something like that uh, occur multiple times throughout the book. Clearly, this was a book of eschatology, a book of future events, not a book of history. So I'm going to present a basic overview of the book, which will inevitably involve some interpretation of the book, but I'm going to do so humbly. I will be dogmatic about the virgin birth, the inerrancy of Scripture, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the literal nature of his resurrection and his sure return. Amen but I will hold more loosely to my interpretation of the book of Revelation. Amen. (laughs) All right. I'm going to suggest that Revelation 1.19 provides a really good little outline for the book. And this is going to kind of guide, uh, give some structure to the time we have together this morning. Revelation 1.19, right there for, I think I have this up overhead here as well. Uh, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Right? Write, therefore, John is being told, write down what you have seen, and what is now, and what will take place later. So we're going to look at that as the three sections. I'm going to suggest that chapter 1 is the sort of the initial vision that John sees. Uh, Chapters 2 and 3 are letters to first century churches. That represents the present, what is now. And then chapters 4 through 22 represent, uh, represent what will take place in the future. All right? So what you have seen three elements to this vision in chapter 1, and I want to pick it up here in chapter 1, verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So there are the three main elements here in this opening vision, what John saw. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches, casting their light out into the darkness of the world. The seven stars are seven angels, one for each church. And of course, the Son of Man, this imposing figure, is the resurrected, ascended, and triumphant Jesus, wearing a robe of honor. The whiteness of his hair speaks to his eternality, not his fragility or his age, but to his eternality. He is holy and powerful, eyes of blazing fire, feet like burnished bronze, a voice like the roar of Niagara Falls, right? And a face radiating like the sun. But notice here what Jesus is doing in this scene. He is holding the seven stars. Each of these stars is an angel or literally a messenger. So he is sending out his messengers, his angels, to the churches. What a great picture of Christ's resourcing of the church, right? He's not left us alone. And notice that that the Son of Man, Jesus, is walking among the lampstands. He was with these churches in the midst of their suffering, right? He's with us. He, He is not distant. John is told... Take what you see here and write it down and send this picture to the churches, the suffering churches. I want them to know that I'm with them. Jesus promised his presence with us in the Great Commission, and here it is being pictured in great detail. Uh, In the ancient world, of course, you would not have candles like this. Uh, A lamp would have oil You wouldn't just plug in the light into the wall. You'd have to put oil there as fuel for the lamp. And so uh, the implication of the text is that Jesus is walking among the lampstands, refilling and fueling uh, these, these lamps with oil so that they can shine brightly in the world. So this is the the initial scene that John witnesses. In chapters 2 and 3, we get to the, 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 the what is now section, the present, uh, sort of the, the nitty-gritty. Uh, Jesus composes letters to each of these seven churches in the midst of their struggles. Uh, so he's giving them real-time feedback, right, in terms of how they are to live, how they are to respond to the things that they're experiencing. 
And many of the, the, the early believers really thought that Jesus was going to return like immediately and establish his kingdom. Look at Acts chapter 1. I mean, Jesus has risen from the dead, and so the disciples are like, okay, is now the time? I mean, we thought you were going to lead the revolt against the Romans, but it didn't work out that way. You died on the cross, but now you're raised back to life. Are you going to establish the kingdom? And uh, so, so here as we're getting to the end of the first century now, and these churches uh, still have not experienced the return of Christ and are starting to experience intense persecution, Jesus, in his grace, communicates with these churches. Uh, each of them has a similar pattern. We're not going to look at each one, but we'll use uh, the church in Ephesus as a, as a case study to just see uh, how these letters go. There's an identification of the author in each letter. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, as you note here in verse 1, there's specific observations about the person of Christ drawn directly from that scene in Revelation 1. Particular aspects of Christ's character that he wants this church to remember. And so as you get to the beginning of each of the letters, it's something different, some different aspect of Christ and his character that is highlighted, but the author is identified there at the outset. Jesus identifies himself to his followers. And then there's a word of commendation in most all of the letters. So here in the letter to the church in Ephesus, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's a pretty good list of commendations, isn't it? I know that you've worked hard. You've, you've expended yourselves in service to me. I know that you've held to true, sound doctrine. Uh, you've identified false teachers. You've not allowed the gospel to be corrupted in any way. You've endured hardships, and you've not grown weary. It's a great list of commendations. But most all of these letters also convey some measure of confrontation. And certainly that is true here in Ephesus, verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. If you read Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he commends them. They had become renowned for their love. And so in the midst of their doctrinal orthodoxy and their strong stand for truth and their hard work, they had forgotten and lost sight of what it was to love. Right? So there's an exhortation, an encouragement to get back to loving well. And then a call to overcome. Each letter closes with an exhortation to carry on, to press in, to keep going, and a promise of reward. Here it is for the church in Ephesus, verse 7. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, or to the one who overcomes, or to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's a promise right there, my friends. I'll give you access again to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Stay true to me. These are real first century churches, um, but I believe they also represent the church in every age. Um, This is our situation. This is the way things are for us now during this age. And so we find so many connection points as we read through those seven letters. Interesting exercise to look through those and see where, 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 uh, what would Jesus be saying to us? <laughs> Which of these messages might, might best fit our circumstance and situation? Well, the bulk of the letter is spent in this final section, what will take place later. Chapters 4 through 22. So chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So again, he's now beginning to tell them about what is to come about future events. There's several uh, movements here, I think, that we could highlight that just help trace uh, the, the flow of events. The first section here in chapters 4 and 5 is what I'm calling the throne room. Uh, John is given a glimpse into, uh, into heaven uh, to see sort of the, the drama that is unfolding behind the scenes of human history. Uh, It is an awesome and majestic scene that is centered on God, seated on his throne, his royal throne. All of creation is represented. Uh, There are human dignitaries, the the 24 elders. Uh, A lot of speculation as to who those individuals are. Some have suggested they're the the representatives from the 12 tribes of Israel and uh, 12 representatives from the church. And, but th- these, these human dignitaries are represented there around the throne. And then there are also angels. So we have representatives from the spirit world. There are these really bizarre four living creatures with uh, multiple faces of different animals seemingly representing the animal kingdom. Usually when this word creatures is used, it's speaking of beasts and animals. And we might, uh, depending on how we read this, even see sort of uh, the inanimate creation making itself known. There is thunder and there is lightning that sounds... uh, there around the throne. And the overwhelming anthem is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So all of creation gathers and recognizes that God is in a category of his own. (laughs) And they just acknowledge him for who 
he is. The focus shifts to the throne itself where God is holding a scroll sealed with seven wax seals. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So the angel comes and poses this question, right? Here's the scroll, seven seals, a wax seals. Uh, Who is worthy, who is authorized to open this scroll? Silence. And John begins to weep. We are not told overtly what the scroll was. Most believe it was perhaps the title deed to the earth. Or perhaps the, 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 the God's, God's plan, the, 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 the final plan for the redemption of humanity, for the making right of all things that are broken. Whatever it was, it was of incredible significance and John knew it. It was presumably, it said it's written out on, the, on both sides. Presumably it was labeled on the outside. You knew what it was. Who is worthy to open this? And as John realizes the gravity of the situation, and the sinfulness of humanity, he is undone. But then one of the elders comes forward and says, Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He is able to take the scroll and open it. And then notice this juxtaposition. The lion of the tribe of Judah is able to take the scroll and John turns and sees a lamb. Both lion and lamb. A lamb who had been slain. The 24 elders break into song and really interpret these events as they sang. Notice chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So clearly the book of Revelation is a book of great victory, the victory of Christ, but the cross is never far from view. Right? It's the, it's the basis on which Christ rules and reigns. And so the reflection on the cross that has given Christ the authority to take that scroll. 
We then have the opening of the seals. So remember, the big scroll, seven seals, and it is beginning to be opened. It's not opened yet, but it's opened one seal at a time. And these seals are, the opening of the seals is traced here in chapter 6 up through the beginning of chapter 8. We have war, famine, death, lament, earthquake, cosmic disturbances uh, with each succeeding seal that is broken. So again, these are not the direct judgment of God, but these uh, things represent the depths of human depravity, the things that will happen before the scroll is opened. And when the seventh seal is opened, there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. The calm before the storm, right? The, the heaviness of what is about to be unrolled. Next is the blowing of the trumpets. The scroll is open. The seven angels now come to blow their trumpets. This is not the shrill sound of a brass instrument, but the deep, somber blast of the shofar, the ram's horn. It was sounded most often to announce God's presence. We have reference to this on Mount Sinai, When Moses encountered God, it was sounded when David, King David, set out with the Ark of the Covenant in triumphal procession. It was sounded when the people of Israel marched around Jericho. Matter of fact, the people were told, be silent, say nothing. Jericho was not to hear the the, the cat calls of People, but was to hear the announcement of God's presence. And according to the book of Revelation, the shofar will sound again when God brings judgment on rebellious humanity. Before the trumpets are blown, an angel comes forward to place incense on the altar to give an offering to God. Notice what it says here in chapter 8, verse 3. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. It's really an amazing scene here. I would I believe these are the prayers of God's people that have been offered down through the ages. Prayers for justice. Prayers for deliverance. And now these prayers, not one of them has been lost. Not one of them has been forgotten. These prayers are brought before the angel, and they are offered back to God, and God now, as he pours out judgment on the earth, answers every prayer. He sets things right. A wonderful scene in Revelation chapter 12 here. Uh, In the midst of the blowing of the trumpets, John 
is given a great sign. Um, I think really captures the unfolding of human history. Uh, we have a woman, a pregnant woman who is about to give birth, and we have a great dragon, an enemy, that is trying to devour the child as soon as he is born. The child is snatched up to God. The woman, too, is protected from the dragon. And then chapter 12 says that the dragon goes off to make war with the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. I believe that woman to be Israel. The child that was born was the Messiah, Christ. And we are the, women, the woman's other children, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus. That's why the dragon hates Jesus and all who are aligned with him. This is the great cosmic story. John sees this picture. Beginning in chapter 15, we have the pouring of the bowls. This is the formal, uh, final aspect of God's great judgment on sinful humanity. The seals have been broken, the trumpets have sounded, and now uh, the, the judgments of the scroll are being carried out. The bowls of judgment are being poured out. And then we have a section on last things. A really beautiful section here. Uh, in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 11, we have what I'm referring to as the return of the king. I believe this is the second coming. This is Jesus coming now in power and great glory. Notice what it says, 1911, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here we have the return of Jesus and the final battle uh, to vanquish evil. There is a, a thousand-year reign that is referenced here in chapter 20. There is an accounting of Satan's doom, uh, his final defeat. There is a great white throne judgment described there at the end of chapter 20 where all humanity stands before God. Those whose names were not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. Those that have rejected God's gracious offer of salvation through Christ, a redemption that he secured through the blood of his own son, right? Those who reject that 
will experience what is called the second death. My friends, don't fear the first death, the death of the body, but be sobered by the second death, the ultimate and final separation from God. I plead with you, the opportunity is extended. Matter of fact, Revelation closes with a great invitation. Come, all who are thirsty, come. But for those who reject God's grace and mercy, there is very real and final judgment that is pronounced there in chapter 20. And then, of course, we have uh, a beautiful section describing the new earth. I've beat this drum before. I'm going to beat it again. Uh, Notice that the eternal state is not heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth. We don't go to live with God. According to Revelation 21, God amazingly comes to dwell with us. We will live on a renewed earth that is free of death and mourning and crying and pain. Our bodies will be transformed at the resurrection. We will still have bodies. We are humans. We are not angels. So the resurrection of the dead, that great biblical theme, and the new earth is all the good parts of this creation without any of the bad parts. We can hardly imagine it, right? It's life without cancer, COVID, conflict, or chronic pain. It's life without aging or addiction or anger. It's life without dementia or divorce or diabetes or digestive issues. It's life without Down syndrome. Sometimes we might think of the scriptures as a linear route, and we've talked about Route 66, right? And certainly scripture is very purposeful. There's a sense of movement, direction, but I would actually suggest that Route 66 is a circular route. It actually brings us back to God's original purpose for humanity. It, it leads us home. Chapter 22 brings us back to where it all began with humanity restored to the garden and given access once again to the tree of life. I mean, ever since Adam and Eve were expelled, it's been the tension and the conflict and the human dilemma. How do we get back into the garden? How do we get back to the tree of life? And it is laid out here for us beautifully. C.S. Lewis captured it. The beauty of the new heavens and the new earth in Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, in the last battle. He says it this way, but the things that began to happen, by the way, Chronicles of Narnia is about a land called Narnia, and uh, ultimately they make it into the true Narnia, or we might say the new earth. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, 
which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Please don't think of heaven or the eternal state as simply a much better alternative to hell, but I'd really rather stay here. There ought to be a growing longing for life on the new earth as God intended for us to live. I long for it more with every passing year. I have a new grandson. I'd like to get to know my grandson a little bit more, but when I read what's happening here, this is life as it was intended to be lived. We ought to long for it as God's people, and it ought to be the great hope that allows us to walk faithfully in this life. John closes with an invitation. Come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And so as we've kind of come full circle in our study here in God's word, a great travesty if you didn't respond to God's grace. If you didn't accept the offer of eternal life that has been extended to you, we would count it a joy to talk to you about how you can have that restored, reconciled relationship with God and a confident future.